You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Episode 131, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. In today's expert, I'm joined again by Dr. Belinda Mott. Dr. Mott is a direct primary care physician based in Grand Rapids. She also happens to be my personal physician. And we're going to discuss today what was going on in Colorado. Most of you aren't paying attention to Colorado. Ordinarily, I don't pay any attention to Colorado outside of know vaguely that they have a lot of marijuana. <laughs> it's one of the first states to legalize it. became sort of popular within the country. But we're going to talk about healthcare in Colorado and a plan by the legislature to create a sort of an Obamacare light or a different sort of Obamacare within the state of Colorado, a public option, you know, insurance-based system. However, it had a twist, and the twist was this. They were going to require you to accept the insurance if the rates did not fall, uh, which likely they wouldn't over the previous three years, and then they were going to take away your license to practice, whether you're a physician radiologist, massage therapist, physical therapist, pharmacist, whoever, if you did not accept their insurance and their rates, they would take your license away. And so this caused a lot of problems, and we're going to discuss the implications for this for basically other states and how important it is as a physician or even any other healthcare professional to pay attention to what's going on in your legislature or at least know someone who's paying attention. Maybe it's an organization, maybe it's actual people, but there's a lot of things that can affect the way you work how you work, how your practice runs, your business, that is critical, and you have to be on top of things. Sometimes we don't want to pay attention to politics, but politics pays attention to us. Our sponsor for today's episode is Panacea Financial. As a company founded by doctors, they know how frustrating it can be to work with financial companies, which is why they've created a better way. Have you thought about refinancing your student loans? Well, unlike other companies, the rates you get at Panacea Financial for a student loan refinance doesn't go up because of your credit score, how much debt you have, or your income level. With no loan maximums or co-signer requirement, 
Their student loan reference is based on the respect physicians deserve and not on a credit score or debt level. Join the growing number of physicians nationwide that expected more from their bank and switched to Panacea Financial. You can visit PanaceaFinancial.com today for a better way to refinance your student loans. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. Well, if you haven't yet already done so, please subscribe to the show. Just hit the subscribe button on your podcast player of choice, and you won't miss a single episode each week. Also, I'd recommend you go back to the list of episodes and find a couple of titles you find interesting, things that maybe we're not talking about today, whether it's direct primary care, maybe we've talked about COVID, we've talked about brain death, forced organ harvesting, the healthcare system and how it's messed up and insurance and so many other things. So I'm sure there's something there that will pique your interest. And if you find an episode that you think, hmm, maybe my friend or family member or colleague would find this interesting as well, send it along to them. I'd love to have new people and the reason the show continues to grow is because of you sharing the show with your friends and getting other people to listen in. I really appreciate it a ton. You can find the show notes to today's episode at theparadox.com slash 131. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S, like it is in the title. Uh, make sure you go there. You can find links to the specific bills we're talking about today. And also, I would recommend that you go to whatever organization you think would be helpful for you in making sure you stay up to date on what's going on within the healthcare field, either in your specialty or in your general market. That's a real important thing. I think we'll touch on that quite a bit during the show. And I think it's just something that's easy to do. It's oftentimes inexpensive or totally free, at least to get the alerts from people, whether you want to be a member or not, that obviously costs some money. But without further ado, Colorado threatens to take away your license unless you play ball. Enjoy. Hey, this is Eric Larson. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Bella Namat. She's also a physician. In fact, she's my doctor. And she runs a direct primary care, which we've talked about plenty of times in the show. But we're going to talk about a little DPC news and related news. So, Dr. Mott, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, anytime, Eric. <laughs> well, those who are very long-time listeners will recognize your voice from, I think it was episode two. Two. And then uh, you also had a cameo briefly a few weeks ago or maybe months ago now at this point. Always I should prep for these shows and actually look at what specific episodes you've been in before, but I don't do that sort of prep for my shows. It's very spontaneous. <laughs> so we're just going to kind of get into things here. Yeah. Well, I wanted to have you, I wanted to have you on because we're going to talk about Colorado, which is a little strange because we're both in Michigan, in West Michigan, but we're going to talk specifically about Colorado bill, House Bill 1232. This is a bill that was, um, I guess, a lot of consternation, a lot of concern from the those in the direct primary care community and also many other people who are in the medical community in general in Colorado. But I want to go briefly through what the bill was originally and then sort of what it became. And then we're going to discuss a little bit of um, sort of, I guess, the implications of, of what they're trying to do. So as you may or may not know, Colorado is is controlled by the Democrats in all three branches. So the Senate, the House, and then the governor's office. And so legislation outside of a veto or some sort of uh, abandonment from a party uh, can move through pretty easily through Colorado. Uh, so they had planned a two-phase bill on health care. So they're going to change health care and prevent a public option. So this is sort of the thing that's been bandied about in the, na- in the nation as far as, you know, federal public option. Obamacare sort of was maybe th- initially going to look like that, and then they just sort of went with this I don't know, what do you want to call it? Like an insurance exchange, essentially, an expansion of Medicaid? It's pretty much what it became. I, I, yeah, I think is the worst of both worlds in one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, right. How, I mean, if you're looking, how much worse if, can if this get? At, if you're looking at control costs, it may, not, it may have been the exact wrong thing to do. But uh, so the plan was in Colorado that they're going to 
present a public option. And so what they're essentially going to do is they're going to create a, a minimum insurance standard for people in Colorado, for all the insurance providers, both public and private, I mean, obviously mainly commercial carriers, that they had to provide this public option and that the public option had to have, meet certain minimum requirements. And the important part is it had to cut costs. So it's expected to cut costs by 10%, I think, within the first two years. And if it doesn't do that, if there's still people who don't participate, meaning like hospitals or physicians or chiropractors, massage therapists, all people who get insurance money from third-party payment, if they don't participate or they're not getting the savings, then those people will be compelled to do that. And so that is phase two. So phase one is sort of, we're to pass these laws, cut the costs. If it doesn't work and there's not people participating, then we're going to do, we're basically going to force you to take the insurance. And if you're someone who says, well, I refuse to take care of these people or do the insurance claims or whatever it is, I'm not going to do it or you're not paying enough, the state would say, that's fine, we'll remove your license, you're unable to practice medicine or practice whatever it is especially. So that's what had everyone concerned. And um, I guess, uh, especially with the direct primary care facility community, it was a big concern, obviously, because you know, your, your shtick, I suppose, essentially is like, we're outside the third party system. We, we contract directly with patients. We provide the service upfront, transparent into how much it costs and what we do. And they either come to us or they don't. It's, there's no insurance provider. We're not compelled to take insurance, but likewise, if you have insurance, we, we can't take it. So we sort of have opted out, right, of that system and have sort of entered a, I don't know, I, I hate to say it's like a a different kind of system because it seems like a it's sort of the typical transaction system in most of our economy, but at least for medicine, it's it's different. And so that was where the, the big concern was. And so I don't know, that seems like a pretty good encapsulation of the initial bill and the freak out, right? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, when we all saw that, I mean, read the, the actual law and see what it says. And I know I read it at some point in the beginning. Um, I think it, it, one of the biggest issues that I think are behind this? Well, there's two things. One is this, I, like the ideal of a socialized public option is the solution to our problems. That's one, I, one part of the problem. And the sure. other one is um, thinking that this is gonna save us money. It's not gonna save us money. And thinking that we can do that in a place like the United States where people want choice. And I mean, we just saw it, right, with uh, COVID, choice of wearing a mask or not wearing a mask became even like a, you know, a reason to to <laughs> fight it between families, friends, um, cities, everybody, right? And it was such a simple thing. Imagine when it's all of healthcare. And so I... I, I don't know. I think initially the, the idea was like, well, that's not going to fly, which now that it's been a few months and it's actually just flying through, it, it can be a reality for physicians and other people taking insurance and not taking insurance in Colorado because they're, the threat is if you don't take insurance, we're going to take your license away. So right. And so I think that's, that's a critical point, right? Because yes. I think, you know, you could say, well, that's fine. If you're a drug premier, you're like, I don't care what you guys do with your insurance, how many mandates you put on and how, what you're going to do as far as costs and expenses and, you know, what you're helping to charge people. It doesn't affect me because I'm outside the system. I'm just selling exactly. a service to someone and I'm just contracting directly, right? It's like, 
if they had passed some bills saying, you know, anyone who does plumbing for state agencies or anyone who gets assistance from the state for their plumbing needs has to accept this. Well, lots of plumbers are like, well, I don't do that anyway, so I don't care. I'll just charge well, what I charge. Now you can lose your but, license over it. Yes. Right. And so, so that's the difference, right? So what's going to happen is time to move. That that was the, if you follow the, the threads on the DPC, it was like, hey, we're hiring in this other state and we need DPC doctors over here, just move. So that I think is the initial um, thought is like, well, I'm out because I am not doing that. And I think especially in the primary care arena where I, where I practice, I've seen it all from before Obamacare to Obamacare and after and the changes that have happened. And I just don't want any part of it. So if people have insurance and don't have insurance, does not matter to me. I treat the same, everybody the same. The tricky part is where do you get things cheaper? And you've, you've seen it, right? Like where can I get vacations if I need a study and just navigating the system for the patients, helping them figure out where to go when you have insurance, don't have insurance, have money, don't have money. This this is why, why we thrive is because the system is so broken. Now, fixing it doesn't mean let's all make it public. People always fantasize and idealize Medicare. Medicare is so great. Yes, right. Ask anybody who takes Medicare how much the reimbursement has gone down to offices, hospitals, to the point that people have had to close. And not just that, but the administrative burden of taking Medicare patients is, is just, you cannot survive because the amount of forms you have to fill out and paper and facts, because I mean, it's like 1960s. Um, it's just not something you can do as a physician and then try to provide the personalized care. So something's gotta give. So you choose a, a socialized kind of approach, something's gotta give. The only way they're gonna find, and this is my vision of this, is the only way you can find to cut the cost by the percent that they're requiring and not you lose your license is to not give you the care that you need. Because that's the only way they're gonna cut the cost is by saying, well, you can't have that MRI because it's not emergent. That is not life-saving. You don't need any replacement. You know, you don't really need that surgery. You don't need that procedure. So there's going to be a, the denial of everything. The way the government usually does insurance is you apply for something, you submit an order, it gets denied, and then you have to fight for it. And then it creates all this extra work that is not compensated. So people just don't take the insurance because it's a pain. And who suffers is the patient in the end because they think it's all free. Well, it's not free. You're paying for it right. somehow either by not getting what you need or of course your taxes or some other way they're going to finance this. But in the end, the patient's the one affected. And I, I, I can't believe that people don't see that. It's so obvious to me, obviously, because I'm over here, right? <laughs> well, and I think, uh, as you said, there, there's an ideal version idea of, you know, what's going, what actually happens and what act, you know, what should happen. And I think we think that we have a lot of political power as individuals when I think it's pretty clear, especially when you try and affect legislation, that yes, you do have some voice within the government, but it's a very small role. You don't have much money. You don't have much uh, institutional you know, firepower. 
And you look at what moves legislation, doesn't move legislation. As you know, working through the Michigan State Medical Society and uh, other ways of trying to change legislation, it's mainly moved, uh, I hate saying special interests, but certainly people who are moneyed interests like uh, insurance companies or hospital associations, maybe even large medical societies, they have much more effect on those sorts of things than obviously we do as an individual. And I would say when it comes to the the savings that these programs look to, to make, without a doubt, there are easily 50% of savings within most healthcare plans. I'd say at least, maybe that's unfair, maybe 35%, 30 to 35%. You could easily cut out of these systems, but it's only by completely radically changing the way the system is set Mm -hmm. up, right? I think if you remove pharmacy benefit managers and their kickbacks and you move, uh, and you add more market competition to hospitals and to imaging. Eric, if you charge what actually things cost, I believe you could save way more than 10%, but that's not going to happen. Because who's behind? I mean, right. when anything like this happens, you want to see who, who's benefiting from this change and who's going to make money. Right. And, right. And without a doubt, when you look at, yeah, well, <laughs> no question. And when you look at this legislation, it the um, the people, if you use the current system the way it's designed and try and find ways to save money following the same rules, which is what would happen, there is no way to save the money unless you just deny services. Exactly. Like, I'm sure your, your patients get all kinds of services that other people can't for a lot, much less money. But the, the difference is, is you're not, you're outside that system. You're in a more competitive market-based system where a laboratory is only f- a few bucks versus you know, the rack rate of $60 or something like that. And, and the only way to cut $60, $50 out of that for the large system is not to start charging $10 what it actually costs because they have all the administrative, you know, bloat. It's to just say, well, you can't get that $60 test. We just save 60 bucks, right? That's like the only way to actually save the money because they can't actually change the way they do their business without fundamentally blowing up the entire it's, system, which is no not way. what any of these, this legislation does. I mean, if you think yeah. of countries that have socialized medicine, it's, it's a completely different system from the beginning to the end, from primary care to specialty to surgery. It's not how this is designed. So if you just use what's there, but now there's now this is the way it's going to be paid for, I think the only way to cut costs, like we said, is to cut the service and say, well, you don't need that test. Um, like you can have a, somebody with Medicare who maybe is a diabetic, right? And, and it's not controlled and you need an A1C and you want to see before the three months, you want to see if the trend of his A1C, her A1C is coming down or going up and you want to get another A1C. Medicare doesn't cover that because they only cover a certain number of A1Cs a year. And you can only get one TSH, you know, a thyroid test a year. If you change the dose, they're going to fight you on that. And the problem is the patient ends up paying if the Medicare says, no, it's not covered. You can only get it once a year. The rest of the time you're paying out of pocket. So ask some Medicare patients what they think about some of the costs they have to cover. Physicals are not covered. Anything preventative under Medicare is not covered. So I think people think, oh, once I get Medicare, I'll be all good. So they wait, right? They they let this all these diseases fester until they hit Medicare age. And then they think, oh, once I get Medicare, I'm going to get all the tests I need. Well, newsflash, they don't approve anything. And you have to fight. It's, it's impressive the amount of paperwork that you have to do to get anything approved for Medicare. And the same goes for Medicaid. So Medicaid 
and I think we talked a little bit about this. So Medicaid, the original, you know, it was like a Medicaid that was just Medicaid without any anything else. It wasn't too bad. They, you know, kind of stuck to like cheaper medications, anything expensive, they wouldn't cover it. But then the Medicaid expansion happened and the private companies, the private insurance companies got a piece of that because they said, we'll pass that, but I want a piece of the market. So then all the big insurance companies have a Medicaid product. And so each one has a different formulary. Each one has different requirements for Proroth and they will deny everything in any medication that's not a generic, they just deny it. So if you were on an inhaler, that is not generic. If you're an insulin, that why is that so expensive? It's not covered. And so we're affecting the most vulnerable population, but somebody's making a lot of money. The insurance companies denying all the services, you know, you can just see it from 2020, the amount of money insurance companies made. Shouldn't that be given back yeah. to the consumer? That would be an idea. Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously the, uh, the, the goal would be that you'd have a competitive market. And so people who charge the least provide the best services would win, you know, or you, that you, that's how, that's how most things in the market work when they don't have huge amounts of government regulation involvement in them. And the only thing worse than Medicare is of course, Medicaid, mm -hmm. which is, uh, as far as payment, when you're reimbursing for, for services. And to your point, I mean, the, the, the problem, because it not only is it as a nightmare from an administrative standpoint for a, a, a physician, or hospital or whoever, but it also is, it, it's very restrictive in what they allow people to do. And, and I think it's important to note that Medicare is different than Medicaid. I mean, obviously Medicare is a federally, um, a federally run system, but if you ever turn on the television, if you watch anything in the afternoon, you will see one after ad after another of Medicare supplemental insurance, right? Because Why would you Medicare need supplemental insurance? Exactly. <laughs> it's, I know people seem to think that Medicare just pays for everything and it actually pays for, it, it does pay for some, some things. I don't want yeah. to make it sound like it doesn't yeah. pay for anything. And you'll go to the hospital and things and that a lot of that is covered. But I mean, it's not like everything's totally free. I, I think people just get to see their grandparents and they go to the hospital and like, oh, well, Medicare is paying for it or whatever. And so they don't think about all the other stuff that goes along with healthcare uh, that's not covered whether it's medic prescription medications or, you know, other examinations or therapies and stuff. Uh, Medicare does cover a lot of it, but it doesn't cover everything. And so that's why there's insurance, and which is still inexpensive, but... Um, well, it depends. Some people pay so much and their premiums for Medicare and a lot of those patients just end up with me, right? I mean, they want to find a way <laughs> to save money because they know that a certain amount of the money that they pay up front the insurance is not going to cover their visits. There's not going to cover prescriptions, labs. So they're like, I'd rather pay you. And then in a year, I know I will save money because all the other stuff you were doing cash. Sure. And, um, and so I guess let's look at the Colorado, go back to Colorado legislation. So the important thing with direct primary care is you contract directly. So you pay monthly fee to you get access to your physician and however many, you know, everyone's different prices are different. I'd say it's anywhere from 50 to $150 a month per person mm -hmm. and depends where you live and what sort of services and how many people are, you know, part of the plan, couples or families or stuff. But fairly inexpensive when you think about what the care you get, 24-7 coverage, you get unlimited visits, usually suturing, basic medical procedures are free. Sometimes you dispense medications and those sorts of things. There's lots of value in a drug primary care that significantly lowers costs. Uh, using the insurance as a 
as a way of doing it. We've seen that they've been very ineffective in doing this. But also, it's a huge cash cow, obviously, mm-hmm. for the hospitals and, and physician groups and imaging and laboratories. And so the last thing they want is that to go away. And so they fought like crazy, as well as a number of uh, physicians who were trying to fight it for other reasons. And so they the legislation changed. And so what, what was going to be, you know, we're going to make this public option. We're going to make sure that you lower costs. If you don't, in a couple of years, we're going to take away everyone's license to practice. The large healthcare systems are probably, yeah, they could maybe get by with that, but they're going to lose a lot of problems with their docs mm-hmm. and all the other pr- providers within their system of other, you know, ancillary services. So they didn't really want that. And so then the legislator said, well, you know what? We'll take away the the big giant hammer. We're going to come down and take away everyone's licensure and forcing you to take this this coverage. We're just going to say all the insurance providers should provide this coverage. The healthcare system should accept it, cut costs, and uh, you should do that within a couple of years. And we'll, I think they're going to, the risk is to cutting some funding for like rural hospitals and or for hospitals in general if you don't meet these certain benchmarks. So at least the the removal of the licensure and the prevention of people who are completely out this side the system by choice, we're going to lose their license. Now they at least will be able to continue practicing. Um, so then after that's done, we still have the the problem that they're going to try and cut costs. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. I think when it comes to direct primary care people, they were going to, as you said, leave the state. Well, I hear people say these things all yeah. the time. They're like, ah, you know, I'm just going to, I'll just quit. I've had, Partners who said, you know, they were about takeovers of the hospital. It's like, well, if the hospital takes over, I'm out of here. I'm not going to take a 50% pay cut or whatever. I mean, usually experience shows eh, about 80% of people would stick around and, and just kind of deal with it. Probably because it's not easy just to move away, especially move out of the state. Yeah. You know, people talk big of until, course. you know, the rubber hits the road. And I think, too, you know, you're also smart in saying, well, I know if I just wait two years, there's likely they're going to change the legislation by the time. And I know they, some of, some of the DPC docs right. in Colorado were working with legislators to try to induce some, maybe introduce some, some. I don't know if it's a change to it or changing the wording so that there would be right. a little bit of room for physicians who are working outside of, of insurance. Because it's like, I don't want any part of that, but I also want to continue to practice. I mean, if you say out of tomorrow, as of tomorrow, you're outlawed and you're illegal. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, hold on. But we DPC docs are doing something good. And we, we, most of us, I think we're not in it for the money. We're not in it to get rich because there's many other ways you could get rich that are easier. Um, But the way, the way I think that DPC works and why it works so well is because you remove all this administrative stuff that is in the way between the doctor and the patient, and you remove all the costs that is associated with running a practice. And you've seen it. I run the practice by myself. I have a part-time nurse that works from home, and that's all I need. Because And now she helps me with prior auths because I just cannot stand doing prior auths. It just <laughs> drives me crazy to be 40 minutes on the phone to have a nurse punch in what I tell her to punch in and tell me it's been approved after I spent 40 minutes on the phone on a test I ordered because I want it and I need it to prove something diagnostic. And you spend all that time. It's just a waste of time that they obviously want you, they want you to quit, right? It's like, I'll just not order the yeah. test because I know it's going to be denied. So then 
they save money because they don't have to pay for that test. So it's it, and just kind of digressing, but that's why DPC works is because we remove all the cost of running a practice because in a regular insurance practice, you have to have all these staff to run the insurance world. The insurance world is so expensive to run because you have, you're an insurance claim adjuster, right? You need to have proof of all these things so that the insurance pays for it. It's you pretty much are working for the insurance company. You're not working for the patient. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why DPC is inexpensive is because we remove all of that. So why don't we do more DPC? If they want to save money, let's actually do it the other way, right? Let's give the patient some money back and say, you go and pay the docs directly and get people out of get the insurance company out of there. But that's my, of course, DPC rant. Right. Well, no, that, <laughs> but that makes, yeah, well, and it makes sense because I, you know, it's so funny because there's so many parts of the, in our welfare system, we'll just call it, let's just call it welfare. You know, it's, it's medical welfare, right? Yeah. Uh, you can either pay, what we do ordinarily is to actually pay money to the people who are getting the welfare and then they spend it, right? So we mm-hmm. sit with food stamps yes. is a great example. Yes. We don't tell people they have to go to Kroger or Meyer or, you know, whatever the grocery, Safeway, right? You go to whatever grocery store you want, buy whatever food you want. We're not telling you what kind yeah, of food. We're not even going to you know, restrict it outside of the alcohol, <laughs> I suppose, and t- cigarettes or something like that, right? I'm sure they have some restrictions like that, but they don't care if you're buying Cheese Whiz or you're exactly. buying, uh, you know, Gouda, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter to them. It's just a certain amount of money you get. And so I think that's one of the things that, that is that is hard to see with DPC because I think it's easy to say, to just tell someone, well, there's a lot of administrative paperwork that is, that we remove by doing direct primary care. And people can say, okay, I can see their savings there. But what you don't talk about, and I think it's harder to sort of understand if you're looking at a direct primary care practice, is that there's the way you make money is totally different, yeah. right? And that's where fundamentally I think is even more savings happen because – you don't make money by someone walking in the door. Exactly. Most practices, uh, you have to actually walk through the door. Now they will. So as every time it's a visit, there's a copay or there's some sort of a fee for showing up, and so your incentive as a as a medical practice is to get as many people through the door and out the door as you can in a day. Mm-hmm. Right. We need as few staff as you can. I mean, that's like any sort of input output for a business. With direct primary care, your sort of your attitude is: I really don't need you to come in. I, in fact, in some ways, you're disincentivized for people coming in. You're like, I can handle it from home. I can do it from text message or I can do it from a video chat or whatever. And I don't have to worry about getting compensated for that specific thing. So I don't have to buy expensive equipment to verify that I you know, record things or make sure I get or capture charges and stuff, right? Because you're just like, I'm just taking care of you for this month to keep you healthy. So you stay out of the hospital mm-hmm. and you stay out of the things that are more expensive. I'm, that's my goal is to keep you healthier. Um I guess you could say with HMOs, with a capitation, there is some of that. But even with that, there was there was still capture. There's still importance of how many people show up. And you still then try and get as many patients as you can. And there you're almost, it's the worst of both worlds, right? You're trying to get as many people as you can and you don't want them to come in. <laughs> <laughs> so so patients can't get in to see you yeah, if they want yeah. to, if they're actually and, sick. And so that's actually and worse. I think patients also are now trained that they have to come in for everything. And you have to kind of retrain their brains that not everything needs an appointment it's up to me right i am the trained physician in this situation so i tell you when you come in or not come in and you can ask to come in i'm not going to say 
I don't want to see you. Um, but I'm like, you don't have to. Uh, we can talk over the phone. We can do a video visit. We can email back and forth and we can figure it out. Some people send me emails that is so funny because they describe their symptoms. You know, my, my abdomen hurts two inches from this and two inches from that. And I'm like, I can't figure out in an email what is going on. I need to see you. So sometimes I'm actually yeah. like, okay, no, that there's certain, certain things you can do over uh, remote in some things you have to see the right. person, but the key of this is because I don't have to see everybody that needs something, my schedule is more open. So then I can actually, whoever I see, I spend more time. If somebody is in the hospital, I can follow up and see what's going on. If I have somebody at home who's sick, I can call them and see how they're doing. So all this extra stuff. So if you, if you shadow me in my office, so some students can shadow direct primary care, obviously, they are so bored because they really don't see what I'm doing. I'm texting and calling and emailing at the same time, right? I mean, I'm doing all of it at the same time. And then I do a refill over here and then do a prescription over there and then look up some prices. And then at the same time, I'm you know, going on up to date and learning something that I didn't know or that I need to refresh my brain. So it's a constant churn, but you don't see it because I'm not got having three rooms full with patients there. If you could see their little, you know, in a, like in a cartoon, you could see the little pop-up of the person, Thought bubbles. Like, like a little yeah. bubble, right? Of I took care of this prescription and this person's sick and this other person came to the hospital. I mean, you still, I still take care of a lot of people but I don't have to physically see them in the office, which allows me to then spend the time for the people that need it more. Somebody's healthy. I don't need to talk to them every day. I have people I talk to every week. Some of my Medicare patients, I talk to them every week and say, Hey, how are you doing? How's it going? Oh, I might need some therapy for this or that. And I usually, when I see them, I sit down like an hour or two and go through every issue is amazing. It's so good. It's good for them. It's good for me. I really get to know them really well. And when they're sick, it's so much easier to take care of them because I'm on top of things. When you have to see, you know, 20, 25 patients in a day, you're just hanging by a thread. I mean, the care is just barely hanging by a thread. And those patients end up in the hospital again and again and again, because you can never get them controlled. So I think on the medical side, I love it because I can take care of people, but also administratively, it's so much easier because you don't have to go from one to the to the seeing people all the time and then having the staff to do that, right? I mean, if I did that, I would need a medical assistant to room those patients yeah. while I'm waiting. I mean, to get from one to, I've been there, done that. That doesn't work. I, one of the big arguments for public option or any sort of these plans for larger public expenditures on healthcare, centralized care, either through the federal government or through the states, is that we really need to have, provide better coverage for the poor. And so if we provide insurance like Medicaid, we can allow the poor now have access to seeing the doctor or getting the, seeing the specialist or going being able to go to the hospital without being bankrupt, right? Direct primary care isn't a hospital, and so I don't pretend to think that you're going to get hospital care through direct primary care. There's certain things you just can't do. You're not going to do take out an appendix in your office. There's certain Hopefully things not. that just don't happen. Yes, I wouldn't know <laughs> yeah. how to do that. Yeah, but so, you can maybe <laughs> deliver a baby on accident, oh, right? Like goodness, when it comes no. in, that's there's no time no. to get out. 
<laughs> not something you'd want to do, but you probably could do it if you had to, right? But um, but when it comes to to the serving the poor, you know, people argue that uh, it's better to have a job and to have insurance to your employer. That's the best way to sort of provide things. Obviously, people who don't have a job but can't have insurance, but they could they could actually afford your services, for instance. Yeah. And I think people say, well, that's impossible, but if the if the service is not super expensive, mm-hmm. you can still people even with aren't without jobs have access to income. Oftentimes, I mean, obviously, truly the destitute can't, but they can't. They're but they're you probably know what? not going to be helped by Medicaid much. Eric, I think honestly, the, the destitute are the ones that don't have an issue. Those those patients are being taken care of. That's why there are FQHCs and residency clinics. And so when somebody calls me looking for a doctor because they have Medicaid and nobody takes them. I say, these are the places yeah. you can call. So I send them to the residency clinics or to Cherry Health or sometimes to Mercy that has, you know, some of their underserved clinics. That's the place where those patients go and they get great care and they get what they need. And then they use, depending on the hospital system, they'll use, you know, one or the other. But surprisingly, I have some Medicaid patients that save money by seeing me because first of all, they don't have to like miss a whole day of work to make an appointment. They know they can get in right away. They know they can take their issues, take care of their issues remotely, which they don't have to miss work. Um, and so I, I actually think it's, it's not, I, I'm not against a public option. I don't think that's unreasonable for certain situations. What I don't agree is that then nobody has to take it. Then you have to take this or you're out. You can't practice. Well, that right. makes no sense. But I take care of some Medicaid, Medicaid patients and it actually works well because if you need to order something, they have insurance to pay for it. So the harder are the people that are above Medicaid but can't get insurance. They can't afford the insurance through work. So that gap. That's that's the, the bread and butter of DPC is people that cannot get Medicaid and cannot buy insurance on their own. So they're in the middle with no insurance because they can't afford it. So if there's an option for them to have coverage for hospital and the expensive stuff, I'm all for it. But don't say that yeah. we can't take care of them because we're not taking their insurance. If the patient chooses to pay you 50 bucks, why not? So I think... If you leave it as a choice, then it's great because then people can choose, but better than Obamacare. Obamacare right now, it's just a mess. It's so expensive. It, it kind of did not yeah. work the way they wanted to. Um, it was a good intention, but. Well, it's, it's using a broken system that we know mm-hmm. that has inflated prices, that it's trying to use that to do something else, to not inflate prices. And, you know, so it's good. You're going to get the same results, maybe magnitude different, but essentially you're going to end up with the same problems. But I think it, to, you, to your point, it's a really good one that you can provide care very inexpensively for people who can't afford much care. And if they're someone who is between jobs or they don't have qualified for the benefits for their employer, or but they're still making some money and they're still getting by a little bit, you're, you're providing the option and continuity that they can't have elsewhere that they can come up with a few dollars. And, and I think what people oftentimes think is that it's super expensive to have this sort of service. Um, I I mean, there's certainly some concierge med- are. medical yeah. practices that are very yeah. expensive, but most of the ones who people who call themselves direct primary care generally, if I found is that are, are re- pretty reasonable, like I said, between 50 to $150 a month, just depending where they are. Mm-hmm. And so that's the case, you know, you could see how 
most people could kind of make that work. And I imagine too, you're you're now have the flexibility to truly take on care if someone can't pay. Right? Oh, I, mean, I I provide a ton of free care. People can't pay. I don't I don't chase them. I don't send them to collections. I I personally don't because that's not what I do. This is not what I'm trying to accomplish in this world is to go after people for not paying. Um, I will try to collect just because it's like it's still a business and I still have to keep the lights on. Um, but if somebody's really struggling and they say, you know what, I just can't pay this month, that's fine. I mean, don't don't spread the news on that. But it's true. I during COVID, a lot of people that lost their jobs, I said, you know what, don't pay me. Whenever you get a job, you know, your job or whatever benefits you get, if you can come back, I'll be here. And I don't want you to cancel because you can't pay. It, it's just not what yeah. we do is, is, and you get attached to people, you know, they get attached to you, you get attached to them too. And you say, sure. I don't want you to go somewhere else. I want you to stay here. And so we, one of the good things I think about DPC is you can actually write off a lot of stuff of not tax benefit write off, but you can actually decide as a physician, if somebody can't pay that you just don't charge them. And you can't do that in an insurance practice. You have to charge and you have to bill and you have to send them a bill. And then if they owe so much, you're going to send them to collection. Well, not you, but the hospital or the practice is yeah, going to send sure. them to collections. And some hospitals go after the wages, which to me, they're all going to go to some special place that's very warm underground. Yeah. Um, Especially if they're like Catholic hospitals. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, how can you do yeah. that? And a lot of the people I see already have at least three to $5,000 in debt with one, two or three of the hospitals in town. And so they can't be seen. So talk about that. You actually cannot be seen. Of course, the emergency room is protected by Amtala. Yeah, but that's, different. that's yeah. why people end up in the ER, of course, because that's the only way they can get care. They cannot go to a primary care office. They're red flagged that they owe money and they will not see them. Guess, guess where they go? They come see me because I say, hey, 50 bucks a month. We're all good. That's all you have to pay. Your labs are like, you know, $5, $10, $15. It's never more than 20. I mean, something very specialized, but most stuff is not that expensive. And at least you can take care of the basic stuff, diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, infections. That's why people end up in the hospital, right? They have an abscess, they have right, pneumonia. Right. So I, when people criticize that we're in it for the money and we're just charging people, you know, a lot of money and getting rich, I'm like, yeah, right. I'm, I don't, I don't fight with that because I, there's no reason. I'm come and see it, and then, and then you can say something. And I'm sure there are people out there that are making a lot of money, but most DPC dogs have, like, I have a heart for medicine and a heart for probably people that need help and that can't get it anywhere else. Yeah. Well, just so you know, uh, I might not be able to pay next month's bill. But, um, <laughs> just That's why I say, shh, so don't I, say anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good thing. This is just a private discussion. Right. Community. Exactly. So, uh, I, I think um, what one thing that's, that is exhibited by this whole episode in Colorado is that Colorado is not unique. I mean, there are 50 state legislatures. There's obviously the federal legislature and these sorts of laws and things can sort of spring up all the time. And so as a physician, you may not want to, be involved in politics and I totally oh, get it yes. and I understand but 
you hopefully have some sort of organization or people who are out looking. And when something happens, it's important for you to act and talk to your legislator. It's probably useful to kind of know who they are and maybe have met them once or twice. Not necessary, but it's always helpful. So they know that you're not a crazy person because <laughs> most legislators were going to think you're probably just a crazy person. I think I've, I've I mean, maybe they meet that. you, they will, they'll ver- <laughs> right. maybe, maybe it's best not to meet them if exactly. they'll actually just verify their, their previous preconceptions. But, um, you know, I think there, there are other things that happen in DPC. This is a very obvious one, right? You lose your license if you don't practice medicine, if you don't treat certain types of people. But uh, when it comes to other things in your practice, the things that can affect you, and I think we talked about earlier off air, is with the e-prescribing. Okay. So electronic prescribing systems, they were put in place by the governments. Generally speaking, I think, pretty much the sort of the camel got its nose in the tent by saying we're going to control the amount of opioid use or controlled substances. And this way we have a better idea of who's getting what and when so that someone can look it up and they can find out where it is. And also to prevent all the medical errors on inability to read handwriting, which nobody does. definitely happened a but lot. Nobody does. It's right. been, I don't know, even the people that don't do electronic prescriptions, we're still printing them in a computer. Um, yes. right. <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen yeah. a handwritten and, and, prescription in 10 years, but maybe there's still well, some have, docs that you, do that. There are, if you go to the surgery center I work oh, at, yeah. they, they definitely have a, <laughs> they have a pad that still sits there and they write prescriptions for stuff. Uh, usually because of the pharmacy downstairs, but yeah, that's not good. But the the point is, I guess, is that there's legislation always out there that can affect your practice. And, and it's important for people, even if you're not a direct primary care doc, but certainly if you are, or if you're any sort of physician to look out for these things that might actually affect, you know, the way you practice and could potentially cause some real disruption. And, you know, I think, you know, at least in DPC, we all kind of help each other. um, And you've seen it. we, we always say, hey, have you heard about this? I heard this is going through, you know, whatever state. Yeah. Are you guys going to do this? Or who's doing electronic prescriptions? And when is that coming up? And luckily, it's been pushed. So so it was, it was supposed to be last year. I'm glad it was pushed because I didn't have it. Um, and, and there's ways around it. So I don't get very frazzled. It must be old age because I don't get frazzled by a lot of things. <laughs> I, I said, oh, there's going to be a change in this. No problem. We'll figure out a way around it because we always do because that's what we do It's just figure how am I going to do it around this? So if I have to pay for electronic prescriptions, I plan for it. And now I'm doing electronic prescriptions, which is actually a lot better because faxing was horrible. Faxing prescriptions. Yeah. They never got them or they pretended like they didn't get them. And then this is a better way to, I don't know, kind of, be in the system, use the kind of the good side of the system, which is having the medications maybe more controlled in a way of how many prescriptions are written, who's writing them, and make sure there's less errors. And yeah, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm all for improving and not against technology or anything like that. But I think we start by helping each other out and saying, hey, did you hear about this? What are we going to do? Is there something we can do? Can I have a friend who went and testified for the electronic prescription and DPC because they there's nowhere in there and I, I try to read it and it's like in Chinese, excuse the Chinese people because I try to understand where in there is like dispensing and there's some mention of dispensing like surgery centers, dialysis centers, but what we do in DPC, uh-huh. which is dispense out of the office, 
it's not there. So what am I supposed to do? Is just send an electronic prescription to myself to be in the system. So <laughs> there's there's some stuff where they just maybe didn't know that that is an option and maybe we just need to add sure. some wording. So one is talk to each other and the other one is be involved, like, you know, as a medical society and try to see, okay, what's coming, what's going to affect our practice. And it's hard because obviously there's not many of us. And so it's hard to get an interest from the docs that are in the system in an insurance practice from the weird stuff we do over here. So it's hard to like push something through. We get kind of, you know, it's, it's the smaller practices. There's not that many of us. So it's a little more um, work that has to happen to get things um, changed or accomplished, I think. Yeah. Well, and certainly when it comes to legislation, I mean, there are certainly ideological objectives that parties might have that, you know, whether it's, we're going to have a public option, it's going to happen. We're going to make this happen. You know, it's good. There's no way to stop this unless the giant lobbying firms can come down and they can stop them in some way or amend the the legislation. But with lots of bills like the prescription and for someone listening, they're like, Okay, so you electronically send prescriptions to your lab. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal for you because well, you're money. a solo practitioner. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to buy a system. And oh, by the way, have you has anyone ever had a computer system where they have a file in one program and try to put another oh program God. and then it changes the font to each or whatever? Other. Right? Yeah. Right. They don't talk to each other. But you have this all the time with technology issues. And so, just saying, oh, we're just going to make you guys just figure it out. Well, that's not always the best way. And so, if you have, but most. Um, legislators would say, all right, so as long as you're going to follow the spirit of the law, so let's say we're going to have e-prescription, you're okay with that. You say, well, I just need a couple of years to figure this mm-hmm. out. They'll probably be okay with that. Yeah. Or there's, I didn't know you could dispense expen- your office, exceptions, right? exceptions, like you can ask for a, a waiver if you can't afford it. So if yeah. you're a solo practitioner or maybe you work part-time and you can't afford it, it's expensive. It's the integration with the, the electronic prescription. I think I paid the first year, I think it was like, five, 800 bucks to set it up. And then it's yearly. I have to pay like 400 just to keep it going. And that's just me. If I had more docs in the practices for each one and it's, it gets expensive and it's, it's a little clunky, you know, it's getting better, but it's, it is a little clunky because you will go from one system to another. And then you have to have, you know, a key fob to do, narcotics and this app on your phone and then of course your phone crashes and um (laughs) so there are ways around it but i'm sure yeah if we go talk to some legislators they'll be like oh you can do that (laughs) yeah and i think and lots of things like you can get they may don't they don't even know that you could dispense medications your office they they, when they think about them they're writing the legislation because it's usually not written by the legislators it's usually written by special interests of some sort who want to get some bill through they're not thinking about Oh, there are actually medicines distributed somewhere else for besides the dialysis unit, like you said, or surgery center. So, they people will add exceptions and they'll amend bills if if things that are not seen as um, going to critically change the direction or the, the the goal of the bill. And those are things very important, oftentimes for your practice. So, just to, I guess the the point is is just hopefully someone's kind of paying attention and sees the bill and say, oh, you know, this might be an issue. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure that this little amendment can be put in. It doesn't change the spirit of the law. It's still going to be the same. Then those are the easy yes. ones. The ones where you have to fundamentally change the bill, like this Colorado le- yeah, legislation that's... to prevent the loss of licensure, that's a big battle. And that you know that's the one where you say, hey, we're just going to have to close up shop. Right now we're providing care for 
you know, 10,000 Coloradans. They're people who don't make a ton of money. They don't really qualify for Medicaid. Even with your system, they might be able to qualify for it. They might not. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very expensive for them. And right now we're providing care. And that's where, you know, maybe even say, tell all your patients, hey, they're going to make me. Yeah. So then the patients themselves can get involved. Yeah, yeah, they're the ones alleged, and those, they're the ones. And I always say, with direct primary care, we're not there yet. But I think with, with school choice, you've definitely seen it, or certainly with homeschooling. If you were to try and take away homeschooling, you, these capitals would burn to the ground, right? <laughs> People would just storm there. Yes. Because there's enough constituency at this point that they're going to that, and they they believe passionately, or maybe even charter schools, they are so all in on it, mm-hmm. and there's so many of them now. Even though it's not fifty percent, it could be even a vocal. F- Four or five percent is a gigantic, you it's know, a lot. headache for a legislator, and you're gonna, and not only you're gonna, if you activate those people because those people really care, mm-hmm. and so you taking away their favorite thing, it's like taking on the senior citizens, you know, with the ARP. Mm-hmm. You have to very tread very carefully if you're gonna take away their benefits. So, See, and I, I anyway, I yeah, guess I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think if we can baby steps, right? Talk to a few legislators. And I think from my experience, from talking directly to legislators, one thing is to talk about politicians in general, but when you talk individually, they're reasonable, they will listen, and they actually listen to physicians because they're not used to us talking to them. So we come out there and talk to them, say, hey, you know, we're trying to do this. How can we make it work? And I don't know all their lingo. I get lost in the legal stuff, but I can say, explain from my standpoint, my patients need this because of the medication savings are amazing. Why can we just make a little note that says, accept this? Um, And I I don't think it's unreasonable, but you're right. A big change, like what's happening in Colorado. I don't know. I'd be packing my bags. (laughs) I feel like I'm moving. And I think I think the point is the, I guess the point I would say with the Colorado legislation is one is there are forces that were going to probably help you on your side, maybe not for the reasons you like it because they're the ones who want to maintain the current system, which is a yeah. kind of lousy system, mm-hmm. right? But they're at least in this sense helpful. Honestly, the only thing that really affected direct primary care was losing the licensure, and I would suspect that if you were saying, "Hey, I'm not even in part of this system. There's no way you can make me take patients," or even if they said you had to. You could always just be full, right? I mean, that's that would be the the workaround mm-hmm. that you would that you would never be able to take that new patient who's like, oh, I've got the Colorado like, public oh, option. I'm say, well, I'm sorry, I'm taking new patients right now. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you can try to get away with that for a while. There are ways of resisting outside yeah. any law, it, as all laws, if they're silly, that you can usually kind of get around them. Well, I really appreciate you, you stopping by and talking to me a little bit about this. I pro- I feel like I'm probably one of your patients who texts you quite a lot, and so I feel a little no? bit I feel a little bad. No, you're actually I, not. <laughs> Oh, I so I should talk. I should text you more. Hey, so maybe that's. Yeah, I'm not getting my money's no worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doctor Mott Ed, from Direct Primary Care West Michigan, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thanks so much for joining the Paradox. Thank you, Doctor Larson. Oh, and by the way, don't forget to reach out to Panacea Financial. Panacea offers loans just for physicians and medical students with low rates, free checking with no ATM fees nationwide, and 24/7 live customer service. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to open your account and join a bank built with you in mind. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.